Hi there. We wanted to take a moment to thank you for all the love and support you have given us in recent times. If you haven't already, please like and subscribe to the podcast and give us a follow on our social media. This podcast is brought to you by The Retro Kit, an online store where you can buy all of your favourite shirts. From Zidane's famous black and white striped Juventus kit to Thierry Henry's invincible shirt, they have it all. You can check them out by visiting our Instagram page. And now it's time for the latest episode. Welcome to Pitchside Perspective Podcast with your hosts Stuart Sharples and Jack Colazar. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Pitchside Perspective Podcast. We are privileged to have a football legend known not only for his inspiring journey, but also for his outstanding achievements on and off the pitch. We welcome Premier League legend Shaka Hislop. A distinguished goalkeeper, graced the football world of his talent. Over the course of his illustrious career, he garnered numerous accolades, including his role in the Trinidad and Tobago's historic qualification for the 2006 FIFA World Cup. His impressive stats speak volumes about his skill between the posts. With a commanding presence, Shaka made crucial saves throughout his career, earning him a reputation as one of the most reliable goalkeepers of his time. From clean sheets to unforgettable performances, beyond the pitch, Shaka has been a force for positive change, using his platform to address social issues and contribute to the football community. Join us as we take a deep dive into Shaka Hislop's remarkable journey. But before we begin, Jack, how are you, mate? Uh, I'm good, excited. Uh, this is going to be obviously really interesting, having an iconic player from the Premier League era joining us, so looking forward to it, definitely. Yeah, really excited about this, and obviously when we managed to get Shaka on, it brought back like down memory lane of just seeing him in goal and the big games I used to remember as a kid, as a fan, watching. Um, so yeah, really, really excited about this uh, this episode. But obviously before we begin, Jack, I've got a question for you. Um yeah. Good luck. I'm going to keep it on the goalkeeper theme this week. So, there are three goalkeepers in the Premier League who have got 150 clean sheets or more. Who are they? Okay, yeah. I'll think. I'm uh, immediately thinking about longevity as well as talent. Um, so, that's going to be an interesting one. I'll have a little think as we go through. Got some ideas already on that one, I think. All right, well, yeah, we'll come back at the end and see uh, see if you figured out the three players. Um, but before we, we go, let's uh, introduce Shaka. Shaka, how are you, mate? I'm doing very well. Good to speak with you both. No, very excited to have you on and uh, really appreciate it. And uh, as a guest on our podcast, we, uh, we're we going to ask you five quick fire questions from Jack. All right. Yeah. Five quick ones. Uh, name? Neil Shaka Hislop. Favourite team? It's a split between West Ham and Newcastle. Okay. Well, and, and I'll add Reading and Portsmouth in there, um, the clubs that I've played for, but uh, West Ham and Newcastle are the Premier League clubs. Yep. Um, Favourite ever sporting memory? Played in 2006 World Cup. Yeah, brilliant. Um, Favourite ever kit? The Skyline kit from Newcastle, which I think was the, the, the kit in, in 94, 90, either 94, 95 or 95, 96. But that Skyline was iconic. Yeah. Newcastle, uh, I always remember Newcastle kits with the Newcastle Brown Ale star in the middle. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was from that era as well. Um, best player seen live or best player best, played with? Best player seen live. Well, I, I think the best four players to, to have graced this game. My opinion, Pele, uh, Maradona, Brazilian Ronaldo, and Lionel Messi. Of of the four of them, I've only seen one live, Lionel Messi. I was actually there at the 2022 World Cup final. Um, well, uh, final, so, so I'm on, on more than one occasion. That's a good answer. I mean, that's a great answer, seeing him live in the World <laughs> Cup. <laughs> no one's going to beat that one, I think. <laughs> what about then, in terms of if we flip that, best player you've played with? Best player I've played with will go to Alan Shearer. I, I, I don't think the game has seen a, a, a better finisher. Probably the, the closest, um, the, the closer I, I, I think can come to this is Erling Haaland, very similar in, in style and, um, 
and 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 finishing ability. Alan Shearer was, was just head and shoulders above. I mean, to to still be the Premier League's record goal scorer, um, and and I think a lot of people forget he he suffered through horrific injuries during the course of his career. Yet still, his his mark stands above everybody else's. How was that in a in training? When he's doing shooting, yeah, it wasn't fun. <laughs> you just had to keep reminding yourself that it's better to have him on your against you in training in training sessions and on your side in, in games than, than the other way around. Definitely. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure you're going into training, going, "Oh, Alan Shearer's got a shoot." Yeah, there we go again. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 humbling. It's, it's probably <laughs> as as nicely as I can put it. No, uh, no, brilliant. So you've obviously had a. Uh, a very, very successful career. And I would kind of love to go dial it all the way back to kind of your beginnings. Um, if you could just maybe give us an insight um, to how you kind of got into playing football, like some of your earliest childhood memories. I've just, I've always played, you know, I have photos of myself as, as a baby and my dad kind of holding me up, um, kicking, kicking on football. Um, I, I, so I, I can't recall how I got into it. I've just always been in it. Um, Probably some of my, my, my early earliest memories is just playing locally as 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 you know everybody does with, with their friends because that's what everybody did. And um from there just kind of progressed, you know, playing club club soccer and then eventually playing for my first junior national team at, at 10 for, for the Trying to be under 12s. Uh and and every step there on in. So you know, it was a, a combination of, as I say, you know, just kind of playing with my friends, uh, school playgrounds, or local parks, um, maybe recognising that I was a little bit better than, than most of them, and and continuing to test myself with, um, you know, organised clubs, junior national teams, and, and it just went from there. And were you always a goalkeeper, or did you want to play no. somewhere else? no. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I always tell people I'm, I'm naturally a striker. <laughs> I, I was made into a goalkeeper. So the truth is, so that same junior national team that I, I went to play for, uh, I tried out for, so it, we did it by, by zones to start with. And I, I went and tried out for the East Zone of Trans Tobago. And actually went as a striker. Never played in goal before. And, you know, here I am walking up to, to the trials. And I still remember the coach, um, uh, Barney, uh, his name is Basil Smith. Everybody call him Barney. Um, just taking one look at me and said, "You're the tallest. You're the goalkeeper." And at ten years old, you know, I I was I wasn't going to disagree. You know, um, I'm like, all right, whatever. Uh, made the zonal team as a goalkeeper. Made made eventually made the national team as, as a goalkeeper. And the rest is history, as as they say. And um, you know, it's still kind of. Always wondered what if and and and, and what not. I mean, so I can, I remember coming through coming through high school, um, uh, you know, when I was you know thirteen years old. I would be the goalkeeper for the under sixteen team, but I'd play I'd play out on the park for the under fourteens. And then as I got older, you know, fourteen and fifteen, I, I eventually made the under nineteen team as a goalkeeper, but would play with the under sixteen team because I was still young enough as an outfield player. So that's kind of how I uh, how I, I, I satisfy that 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 yearning. No, that's that's brilliant. I I think a lot of goalkeepers probably just get chucked in at the deep end and go, oh, yeah. you know here's a pair of gloves, go and go and we'll see how you can deal with it. That 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 certainly was my my uh, my beginning story. Brilliant. Um so then obviously then from Trinidad you went on to Howard University and was a, a freshman starter as a goalkeeper. How would your your college experience because now I feel college is so important to players, especially high school players. They they want that scholarship or they want to get into colleges. Talk us a little bit about your college experience. I I, I loved it. I was a redshirt freshman to to to, to be honest. So I, I you know back in Trinidad and, and this is through through the the mid mid to late eighties. Um, there there was no professional league. Right now we we're struggling to put to put back together a professional league. Um, there was no professional league, and, and in all honesty, if you played soccer back then. 99% of people went on went on to, to college in, in the US if, if, if they were good enough. This was before Dwight York moved to Villa. So the, the stories of, of uh, soccer players finding, finding you know, playing the game uh, beyond our shores outside of college were, were very few and very far between. I, I 
could probably think of one other before before Dwight and that'd be uh, Gally Cummings who went on to coach a national team. But um, so as, as I'm coming to the end of my, my high school time, I'm, I'm thinking that, you know, college is, 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 is right. Let me go get a degree and, and um, pursue some kind of profession from there. Um, Howard University had a strong, strong history of, of Caribbean athletes, particularly Trinidad Tobago, um, the, the goalkeeper for the team that won, won the NCAA title in 1974 was a Trinidadian by the name of Trevor Leiber, and he came out to Trinidad to, to recruit me. Um, uh, you know, came to, to, did a couple of training sessions with me, and, and uh, eventually Howard, Howard signed me. Keith Tucker was the head coach at the time. Um, I, I joined kind of late, um, just before the start of the school year, and I picked up an, an injury in, in, in preseason, and they decided to, to redshirt me. So, which was fine. So I, I you know, just kind of got to settle into to college life. Um, got to focus a lot on on, on my studies, um, and kind of set the foundation for um, what turned out to be, you know, a, a good college college experience, um, both socially and and certainly athletically and, and academically. You know, while while I talk about my my fifteen years of playing as a pro, I, I also, especially when when talking to kids, um, highlight that I graduated third in my my engineering class out of Howard University. So um, I'm I'm quite proud of how I was able to to balance it too. Yeah, myself and Jack have obviously coached many kids in our past. Like, I just want to be a player. I just want to be a player. But the importance of understanding that your career, yes, you might make it pro, but your career could be switched off just like that. So yeah. the education part is so important. And... I, I think if I can add to that, sure. I mean, one of the things that I always point out is, you know, you, you never, it, it's only when you look back, you, you start to appreciate how different things and different experiences in life um, affect or impact or, or, or shape, you know, what, what, what ultimately you want to do. So now I, I always say, like, while I have not worked a day in engineering in my life, um, that the discipline needed to balance my schoolwork and 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 my soccer, um, I, I I needed in in later life because as you know, as you go on to as you go on in, into pro life, you have a lot of free time, um, you know um, that more more times than not catch a number of players out in in how you spend that free time because that how you spend that free time is every bit as important as how you as how you train what you do during training. And so just kind of understanding that balance and understanding that discipline, which I got from my, my college experience, if I didn't have that, I'm not sure I could be speaking to you both about a 15-year career. Um, so while, I, again, graduating, in, in graduating from, from engineering as I did had no direct impact on me as a goalkeeper, the discipline was absolutely vital to, to any progress that I, I recognize as, as as a player. Yeah, no, it's, it's so important. And so when you were going through your college degree, would you say maybe more of your focus then was on the education rather than your your life outside of college in terms of trying to make it as a pro? Or did you always want to be a professional player? No, I, I never thought about turning professional until until the year before I graduated, in, in, in all honesty. It's just not something people from Trinidad Tobago did. You know, so I it, it it never crossed my my radar as a possibility. I'm no different from any other kid, and you have these wild dreams about, you know, playing professional or playing in the World Cup and scoring a hat trick in the World Cup final, stuff like that. But coming from Trinidad Tobago, you know, again, it's it's not something I, I was ever able to to see to recognize, uh, and and in a, in in, in a, a much used certainly contemporary sense. Um, representation matters and I never saw that so I, I never thought it was a possibility for me it's only when I, I so my, my junior year at, at university is I, I actually interned at NASA NASA's headquarters in Washington DC Howard University also in Washington DC I, I did an, uh, a summer internship at NASA headquarters so that would have been the, the summer of 1991 um, and I, I remember my my mentor there, a young engineer by the name of Greg Sweetek, just speaking to him about about my plans for after college. Um, and I told him I was giving this some thought, and 
he said, give it a try. You know, I, you know, you can always come back to engineering and you can be an engineer and you'll be a fantastic engineer, but you may always wonder what if, if you give it a shot and it doesn't work out, then so be it. Fall back on engineering. You know, your degree and your experiences are, are, are not going to go anywhere. Um, and and it, that was the point that I kind of became determined to, to figure this professional thing out. You know, I still wasn't quite sure how I'd find how I'd find an opportunity, how I'd get a chance. But you know, I I wanted to give it a shot and and um uh and, and see. Uh, and just kind of trust that that something would, would present itself to me. And uh, as it turned out it, it eventually did. Yeah, exactly. And and like you spoke about that chance, it actually came about, I would say, in maybe a unique manner in terms of playing a, an indoor game, which yeah. to people back in the UK playing an indoor game sounds strange, but Within America, especially in the eighties, nineties, you and you have the indoor league. So, how did it come about getting spotted by Reading? Well, I, I got drafted by. So, again, back, back in this is back in nineteen ninety two. There was no MLS. There was a professional indoor league, um, and I got invited to play in the, the college showcase. Thankfully, that year was was in Baltimore, um, which is just just north of, of of DC. It hadn't been anywhere else in the country. I wouldn't have been able to afford to go, but I could afford to, to hop on a bus to Baltimore, which is what I did. Uh was eventually drafted by by the Baltimore Blast. The the head coach of the Blast at the time was Kenny Cooper Sr., former goalkeeper for Manchester United. Um, I, it, I, as a funny turn of events, um, training with the Baltimore Blast, Kenny Cooper Jr. was five or six years old and kind of running around on, on, on the pitch after training. Kenny Cooper Jr. became a teammate of mine at FC Dallas some 15 years later. But um, but I got drafted by the Blast. And and, and as it turned out, Baltimore Blast were, were going to England to play a couple of games against Aston Villa that, that summer, the summer of 1992. Dwight York had just joined Aston Villa. I grew up playing playing football with Dwight. Um, I, I mentioned that uh, national under-12 team that I played for when I was 10 years old. Dwight also played on that same team. And, Mind you, this is under 12. Dwight is two years younger than me, so he was only eight years old playing under 12. So that kind of spoke about his talent. Um, but we go, we play, we play in the Baltimore. We go, we play Aston Villa in a couple of games in Birmingham, Birmingham Indoor Arena. Um, I won my the match definitely with one game. Um, I, I may have won it for the second. I can't actually remember. Uh, but I got spotted by a Reading scout there and um, said, just, you know, give this guy a look. And, I uh, was invited up for for a trial uh, at Reading that later on that that, that summer. Um, a, a two it was supposed to be a two week trial. Uh, eventually dragged on for for two months. I kind of saw trialists come and go, and and then eventually Reading Reading offered me a, a professional contract, my first professional contract for the for the princely sum of of four hundred pounds a week. Um, so it so. Uh, um, but I, I, but you know, here, here I was pre presented an opportunity, um, an opportunity to chase, continue chasing a, a boyhood dream, and and uh, you know, while certainly you you talk to players now, and and um, there's such focus on on the money and the financial aspects of the game. For me, it was just about I, I was getting a chance, and I I jumped at it. It sounds like you know at various points already you've taken a small. Or risk, if you like, you know, moving, mm. you know, taking that jump to go to the Baltimore trial, taking that risk to stay in Reading and do and do the trial there, and kind of and back yourself to really kind of go for it. You spoke a little bit about how you probably had that base because of your degree, and you knew you could go back to that. But throughout that period, what was driving you to to kind of really push yourself into these situations to try and make it? I just wanted to see. I wanted to see if I was good enough, you know. And and I'll be honest, that drives me in everything I do. I I I. You know, and it's it's I guess it's easy for me to sit back and say, yeah, I had this confidence and I knew and I backed myself. But a lot of times when you're in it, you're, you're filled with such self-doubt. You know, you're, you're really wondering, is this the right thing to do? You know, and to put things in perspective, you know, you have to remind people that this is this is the early 1990s. This is before cell phones. This is before the Internet. I, I leave friends and family in, in, in different circumstances um, behind without knowing when next I'm, I'm going to speak to them, you know. Um, and so it's, it's difficult. And you do, a, a lot of self-doubt does, does creep in. 
Um, but I, I just, I wanted to know if I was good enough. I wanted to, I wanted to test myself against, against the best. And if I failed, so be it. That, that's the one thing I will say. Um, I, I've always, I've, I've always had. I'm not afraid to fail. If, if I fail, I'll pick myself up. I'll laugh, dust myself off, have a little giggle at myself, and, I, and I'll move on. Um, and, and and that simply is 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 all it was. I, I wanted to, I wanted to know. I wanted to know if I was good enough. Yeah, that's a great answer. So, uh, you know, you're in you're in Reading, coming from Trinidad and Tobago. How mm-hmm. how was Reading not only on the field at the club, but also how did you find living in England in that area? Um, initially tough. In, initially, my first year, I, I really struggled. Um, I struggled to set in. Being a professional is hard. It, it, it takes a lot more out of you than I think you, you recognize. Um, you know, again, I'm, I'm away from family and friends. Um, I, I, and I really struggled. I remember um, at the end of that first year, so 1992, Going back, uh, oh, so it had been some of nineteen ninety three. Going back to trying to big one and telling my dad I, I, I wasn't enjoying it, and and I, I was seriously considering whether to go back. But as it happened, um, I, I signed a two year contract um, again for four hundred pounds a week back then, um, and my, my dad was, you know, said, "Listen, you, you signed a two year contract. You honor your contract. If at the end of two years, it, you still feel this way, then." Go back to school. Go go do your masters in engineering, and you know you give it a shot. Um, and and that's what I did. I I, I thought I'm going to honor this contract. I'm I'm going to go back, um, and see see this year out. Um, I I get back to Reading that that preseason. So this is preseason of of '93. Uh, Mark McGee and Colin Lee, the um, manager and head coach, put me into the office in Elm Park and. Mark says we've we've just sold our goalkeeper Steve Steve Francis to Huddersfield, and truth be told, you know the 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 club doesn't have money to to replace him, so we're giving you your chance to to, to be number one. And it's kind of kind of as blunt as that. <laughs> we we can't afford anybody else, so here you go. Um, and and uh, again, as nerve wracking as it was, you know, it's an opportunity to to test myself. I, I proudly say I played every single game that season. I was the only goalkeeper on Reading's books for, for most of the season. I say most, most of the season because so back then, this was before transfer windows, you could bring, you could bring players in, in and out of, of the club all, all, all season long up until I think it was the, something like the second Thursday of March or something of, of, of the sort. After that, you can't bring anybody else in. Um, so Reading signed a goalkeeper um, just before transfer deadline, just because um, we were sitting top of what was then the second division, what is now what is now branded as League One, uh, and I literally was the only goalkeeper on on Reading's books. Um, so I, but uh, just to, to cut to the chase, I, I played every single game that season. We won the second division slash League One, uh, and and got promoted and and. And and that was it. And then um, again, that kind of that kind that that kind of um, signal to me that yeah, I'm 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 good enough at, at the very least. I'm good enough at this level. No, I think that's important, right? That's like almost like that light bulb moment to say to yourself, "This is me now." And you you kind of finding yeah. out who, and especially being so young as well, like you kind of you as a goalkeeper, maybe you feel more insecure than outfield players because at the end of the day, it's if it's either going in or it's not going in. If you're a player out on the on the pitch and you miss a pass, you miss a pass. But a goalkeeper's under so much pressure. Yeah. But Reading, you obviously had such a, a fantastic time there. Was it a case of you were ready for maybe the next step? And is that kind of how the Newcastle move came about? Yeah, well, the Newcastle move came back came about so the following year. So we get promoted to to what is now the championship. Um again, I play I play every game that season. We we actually finished second in in the championship, but but that year um, they were reducing the numbers in the Premier League. So four teams got relegated, uh, only two got promoted. Middlesbrough won, so they got automatic promotion, and then the playoffs were second through fifth. Uh, we lost in the playoff final to Bolton, but I, again, I I I had a really good season um, playing every game again. Uh, and, and that's when I, I really started to believe that I was good enough for the Premier League, playing playing at that division. And, and there was a lot of speculation 
all season long as, as the season went on and I continued to grow in confidence and um, that that a Premier League move was, was, was on the cards. Um, then that, that summer, summer of, of 1995, uh, as it happens, I also got married that summer, summer of 95. Um, and then uh, uh, Kevin Keegan eventually called to say that, you know, they, they were tabling a bid for to, to, to bring me up to Newcastle. Um, Newcastle was spending a lot that, that summer. They, they brought in uh, David Ginola, Let's Birdman, Warren Barton, um, and, and he wanted to bring in uh, another goalkeeper to, to also test um, Pavel Sinicek. So it's time during Reading very successful. I think I'm right in saying you won the Player of the Year two times as well. I believe so. Yeah. So in my, yeah. my second two years. Yeah, and then when you moved to Newcastle, it was around about one and a half million pounds for mm-hmm. at that time to spend that much money on a goalkeeper was a significant amount of money. Um, mm-hmm. Did that add any any pressure at all, or a point to prove? Not not really for me. You know, players don't have much say around around the price that's you know negotiated higher up in, in, in the um in, in, in the, the kind of marbled hallway. So nothing to do with me. Um and, and as far as I was concerned, I, I was just a, a, again a lower league a lower league goalkeeper coming up to, to a club to to kind of add to to, to the talents that are already there. You know, Pavel Sunichek, as I mentioned, he'd been a stalwart at Newcastle. And I was just I, I was coming to to add to that, so I, I didn't feel I didn't feel that pressure. Um, it was a lot of money for a goalkeeper, yes, no question. Um, but I I didn't feel that pressure. I I I just wanted to to again test myself that that little bit further. And then just just staying with that kind of mental side of the game, as you say, you went there with Pavel already there, kind of battling it out for a goalkeeper spot. And I think you know current day. Maybe at Arsenal, for example, it's a similar thing mm-hmm. with two very good goalkeepers competing yeah. for a starting position um, compared to a traditional kind of number one, number two, very clearly um, stated. How how was that having to having you know two go- two very strong goalkeepers at the same club battling? Um, it was it was difficult, and and I mean in 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 talking about Arsenal and their position, I I I, I said exactly what I, I felt back then. Not having a stated number one, not have, having that that um, stated um, hierarchy, I don't think helps either. You know, so because what what happened, and I felt this happened to both myself and Pat, you, you end up playing, being afraid to make mistakes, mm. and and as a goalkeeper you can't. As a goalkeeper you have to play a game, and and trust that mistakes are our human nature, and that you won't be you won't be severely punished. So you won't just be dropped because, because of a mistake or two. Um, and then what, what then happens is you end up playing within yourself and you make more mistakes. You, you don't come for crosses or you don't, don't come for that through ball because you're afraid that, oh, I'm, if, I, if I come up just short, I'm going to get dropped. Or if I don't catch this cross cleanly, I'm going to get dropped. And, and so that, that affects... That affects both goalkeepers uh, adversely, um, so uh, for me, it, I, it, uh, I, I didn't, I, you know, especially looking back, I don't think the experience helped helped either of us. Um, and then, you know, again, you, you you draw the parallel to what's happening at Arsenal now. Similarly, I, I don't think Raya looks the goalkeeper that that he does now, as 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 he did at Brighton. Um, uh, Oh, oh, at Brentford, excuse me. I don't think Raya looks a goalkeeper. No, that he does at Brentford. I think Ramsdale, on the couple of occasions that you've seen him, has looked nothing like the goalkeeper we've seen for the last two seasons with Arsenal. And that's because to start the season, and I called it if I can, if I can pat myself on the back there, um, when Arteta said, "Well, I've, I don't really have an established number one," I, I saw this coming. Yeah, you shoot yourself in the foot almost. You, you kind of already planting that doubt of seed in both the goalkeepers' mind. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, the, the, the thing is, and, and again, you, you talk about that 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 seed of doubt. Um, and and goalkeeping, listen, professional football, I'm going to put it in goalkeeping. Um, the game is so quick, you have to make these really quick decisions and trust in them, have faith in them. If for a half a second, I wonder, 
will I get to this cross or will I get to this through ball? I've already missed my opportunity. So, you know, that certain, having this kind of uncertainty about you, again, just makes you make well, either bad or late decisions. And let's be honest, late decisions are bad decisions. Yeah. Um, and, and that inevitably, well, what happens? You have, to, you have to trust your instincts and be allowed to act on them immediately. From the time you start to second guess that, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're already feeling. Yeah, then obviously at Newcastle, it kind of happened again under Dalgleish, bringing in obviously Shea Given, another good goalkeeper that you're competing yeah. with. Was it a case as well that, was it easy enough to have conversations with Dalgleish, with Keegan, to say, look, boss, what's happening here? Am I your number one or am I not? Or was it a case of just get on with your job and do your best you can? Yeah, well, the truth is, I knew Shea was number one. I knew she was, you know, at that point, I knew she was going to be Dalgleish's number one. She had... had come up at, at Blackburn when Dalglish was manager at Blackburn and I, I knew I was number two um, I had one more year left in my contract and so I was determined I, well you know I'll see this year out and, and then and then and then move on um, but I as it happened Shea picked up an injury I got a chance the team just started winning um, and I and I kept my place the old cliche you don't change a winning team so while I, I kind of recognized I was number two the team just was playing really well and and so I, I kept my, my kept my spot until um, Newcastle offered me a, a, a new contract. Um, I didn't want to sign it um, because I, I knew I was I knew I was number two to Shea, certainly over the longer term. And you know, Kenny put me in the office and said, "Listen, if you, if you don't sign the contract, I'm I'm going to play Shea." Um, I wasn't going to sign an extended contract again. I, I I understood the hierarchy, so it was an opportunity for me to move on in pursuit of, of first team football. And and that's what I did. Um, so it, the the rules or the designations were far more clear cut uh, under Kenny with with she uh, with, with she there. And I, I hold absolutely no resentment um, about that. I, I I all you ask for from a manager is honesty, and Kenny Davies gave me that. And I'll be honest, she was an incredible goalkeeper. I I you know people even today when I I talk about I, I talk about goalkeeping and different aspects. I um she she always comes first to mind. She in terms of goalkeeping technique, I, I have never seen a goalkeeper with, with as good footwork as, as she given. So, you know, I, I she I still regard she she as a friend. You know, he and I were having conversations a couple of months ago. Um so it's it's I have no hard feelings about that. That's that's the nature of the game. I think the goalkeeping position is is a unique one for so many reasons, but one of them is that when a player is incoming or, or you're looking in the change room and see another player, you, there's a little bit more directness in terms of that's the player I'm competing with my, for my sport, right? Maybe, mm -hmm. you know, if there's three good centre-backs, well, I can get two out of the three positions. Yeah. might be me, for example. So, and again, it comes down to that mental resilience and mental toughness side. You know, how how do you approach that when you are given the opportunity? You mentioned there when Shea Given got an injury and it was your, your opportunity. Do you go in there just kind of with a point to prove, with a chip on your shoulder, or just you know, just go out I there. Play my game. Yeah, I, I play my game as naturally as it comes. You know, I, I, and and you're right to point out the difference in mentality between between a goalkeeper and, and an outfield player. You can't stick me on the right side, you know, um, just to, to you know to, to to get an opportunity. I think the mindset, and, and yes, I'm a little bit I'm a little bit biased towards goalkeepers and 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 uh, their mindset and, and mental strength. Um, but the mindset for, for a goalkeeper, you know, on the outside trying to get in is you've got to be prepared for your chance. Because while, um, as you mentioned, Jack, an, an outfield player, you could maybe play on the right-hand side of, of the three centre-backs and, and work your way into it and, and develop relationships and understandings with, with the other two centre-backs. As a goalkeeper, you have to hit the ground running. So your preparedness... Um, all season long, all week long, has to be one that I'm I'm going to play. Um, you don't, you aren't afforded that opportunity to kind of build in, build into the position to build your confidence up. You have to be at your absolute best. So when when you know people say, well, you know, you've got to train as though as though you'll be playing on Saturday. 
that that is an absolute truth. That's an absolute must for for goalkeepers. And again, maybe I'm a little bit biased, but I I, I would say more so than than any other position on the park. You spoke there about um, that kind of conversation with Dalgleish, which I think is a really interesting insight. How he kind of gave you that option of sign the deal or you're on back on the bench, and then obviously you go from a very iconic manager there with Dalgleish to getting a call from uh, Harry Redknapp. Yeah, yeah. So Leslie is actually one who first called me. Leslie was the goalkeeping coach. May he rest in peace as well. Um, was the goalkeeping coach of West Ham at the time, and, and he called me to to get me down. Um, um, and and I, I jumped at the opportunity. I, I you know I wanted first team football. Um, as it happens, uh, you know you also have to kind of look at at the goalkeepers of the club, what the situation you're going into. Um, Bernard Lamar had been rumored to, to go back to France. Ludek McClosko, who was iconic West Ham goalkeeper, but you know he was you know well into his thirties at this point, um, and and would probably retire in, in a year or two. So I just thought it was a great opportunity for me to, to come into a club um, and really establish myself and, and be given an opportunity. Um, I, I got to know I got to know Leslie quite well over, over you know a couple of months before I, I came into came into West Ham and and just you know jumped at the opportunity and and again things things went really well for me there. I think from the outside, somebody like Harry Redknapp seems a very people's person he's a people's yeah. manager he's good at managing the person so what were some of those maybe early conversations you had with him when you're first there like did he instill that confidence in you to say look Jack, you're my number one you're playing and was that important yeah it was uh, absolutely given given what i you know i've been through it at newcastle the kind of um the the uncertainty around around that that hierarchy Coming into to West Ham is is everything I needed, and and you're right to point out Harry was an incredible man manager, uh, and and you know would say that he's like, listen, I've been waiting for a goalkeeper. You now keep in mind, Bernard Lamar, absolute legend, Ludic McCloskey, um, many regard as as the best that I've ever played for West Ham, and here he was telling me, you know, truthfully or not, that I'm the goalkeeper he was waiting on, and that's all I needed to hear. Um, and and you know again had a I, I loved playing I played for, I played for Harry twice I, I then joined him at Portsmouth but certainly that that spell uh, at West Ham was was absolutely fantastic for me I, I I loved every minute of it. And entering into that West Ham dressing room, there was a lot of characters that you've played with there. Yeah. And obviously you had the the up and coming Rio Ferdinands at the time, the Frank Lampards, but then you also during your time had characters such as. Ian Wright, Razor Ruddock. How important was it to have the right dressing room characters? And we see it today and we hear a lot in the media about how managers are losing dressing rooms and losing the change. Mm. How important was it going through your career having important characters? Listen, West Ham pride themselves, you know, the, as, as the academy of, of, of English football. And so I, I thought I was West Ham at its absolute heyday. Some of the players that came through at that time, you mentioned Frank, you mentioned Rio. Joe Cole, Michael Carrick, um, all players who, who were coming through West Ham at, at, at the time. At the same time, um, you had these incredible established talents, uh, uh, you know, maybe coming to, to the end of their careers between Neil Ruddock, Ian Wright, Davos Suka. Um, I mean, it, it, it was incredible to, 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 to sit back and, and recognize Joel Pierce, who I also played with at, at, at Newcastle. Some of these players coming through who'd, who'd been there, seen it, and done it, and were like everybody else. And I think that balance of, of, um, of experience and, and, and that youth was, was needed because, listen, everybody goes through difficult times. You know, things always don't go to plan. But when you have players like the experienced players, like the ones that I've called, who've been there and done, done all of that at the, at the highest level, they take things with such an even keel that, you know, success and failure, you know, it's, it's met, met with the same kind of same approach that, okay, we're going to get back on the training ground and, and, and work just as hard. Uh, and, and I thought that was a, an invaluable lesson for me. It was an invaluable lesson for, for the team and, and a lot of those young players coming through. We often get kind of caught up in the successes. We get caught up in the wins and then, you know, 
find ourselves in, in this roller coaster when, when we lose games, when we pick up injuries. But you, you look at somebody like Ian Wright, um, who has won more than most and, uh, again, does not get carried away when, when we win, does not get overly dejected when we lose. Um, that, that's, that's needed. I just have a I just have a quick question because the list of players you just named there is unbelievable. Some of the yeah. some of the names. When you see a kind of a young Rio Ferdinand or a young Frank Lampard, you know, for me, Rio Ferdinand probably the best centre back ever in the Premier League. Frank Lampard, goal scoring machine from midfield. Ian Wright, obviously at the older end, but you know, this goal scoring machine was he was. When you're on the training ground with these players, do you do you notice something different about them? Is it are you able to see kind of a young Rio Ferdinand to be like, yeah, he's yeah. different, he's gonna be something special? Yeah, I, I, absolutely. You, you see those talents, but I, I think one of the one of the beauties of those talents, um, you know, you, you see how naturally gifted they are. But especially in, in that West Ham team, again, they, they were allowed to make mistakes, you know. And and I, I I think one of the one of the things about a club like West Ham, especially, who understand that development cycle, that young players coming through, talented they may be, they're going to make mistakes. And you cannot get down on them. You cannot um, discourage players taking a chance. Um, you've got to encourage that and, 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 and give, them, give them those opportunities to figure out what works and what doesn't. Uh, and and that's, that's, exactly, that's exactly what we had. You know, um, when, when Rio did something right, you know, Players like like Ian Wright and Razor Ruddock would be singing their praises. You know, did you see that? Did you see what Rio did? It, 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 I mean, they would, they would, they would be lauded when they did something wrong. Nobody mentioned it because that's a part of the process. Um, and and I think it was, a, you know, dare I say, I think it was in, you know, not to speak for for Rio or Frank, but it was invaluable for for their own development. And then you're right to point out, Jack, how, how far those players have gone. I, again, I include the likes of Michael Carrick and Joe Cole there. Um, but that's, those are lessons learned at, at a place. You need to have that culture. And West Ham have that. West Ham have that culture of development. Not just giving young players their chance, but allowing them to make mistakes, allowing them to thrive. Uh, and that's what you witnessed. And it seems like it continuously happens at West Ham. And, they, and like you said, it's, that culture is so important. Um, so obviously from West Ham, it was a move on to Portsmouth. And going back obviously mm-hmm. under Harry Redknapp, was it one of those where you thought, well, under Redknapp, he had the culture right, he had the environment right. So you almost put trust in him when you went to Portsmouth that it was going to be similar maybe? Yeah, I, I, I love playing for Harry Redknapp. And, um, you know, so the, the build-up to that is... Um, I so I, I joined West Ham in '98. Um, got player of the season '98-'99 season. Halfway through the following season '99-2000, just in, into February 2000, broke my leg. Um, came back, came back at the start of the following season, but came back too early and and just struggled. Then Harry was replaced. Glenn Roder came in. Glenn Glenn bought David James, and all of a sudden I, I was a number two again. Um, I got a run in the team because David got injured playing for England. But then, you know, I, I knew I wasn't, you know, I wasn't going to stay on, on, on the road because I, again, I, I didn't want to be a number two. So, but Harry went, had, at this point now moved to Portsmouth. It was a, a league below, um, but I, I, I wanted to play. And, and so I, I again, I, I jumped at the opportunity to play for Harry at, uh, at Pompey. Just knowing Harry as a manager, knowing what he could get out of me. At this point, I'm I'm in my thirties, and I'm I'm um, you know recognizing that maybe don't have that long to go in, again in the game. But I wanted to keep playing, and and Harry and Portsmouth uh, offered me that opportunity. And again, I loved every moment of it. I think I'm right in saying that I played every game that season again. We won what was um, I'm not sure it was, but at this point branded the championship, but. Um, we won, we won the championship, and as, as fortune would have it, that very season, West Ham got relegated from the Premier League. So Portsmouth got promoted, and West Ham, who had left a, a year earlier, um, goes the other direction. That's interesting. And obviously, every club it seems like you've been to, you're picking up 
an award every season, and it just shows how reliable you were as a goalkeeper. My, um, my, my humble brag, if I may say, is every club I played for, um, we we had the best we had the best season, if not period, um, in in our recent history. Uh, for for the first time, Reading, well, for the first time at that point, Reading, Reading. Uh, we should have been promoted to any other season. We, we would have been promoted to the Premier League, but they'd never ever finished that high uh, in in the first division before. I know, I know. Since they've gone on to become a Premier League footballer, but they'd never been that high in their history before. Um, I finished second twice with Newcastle in the Premier League. Um, still, Newcastle's highest ever Premier League finishes. Um, my first season at West Ham, we finished fifth in the Premier League. That's still West Ham's highest ever finish in the Premier League. Portsmouth, we got promoted. Um, we got promoted and stay up. Promo- Portsmouth had been promoted many years before. I think I might have seen maybe nine or ten years before they'd, they'd been promoted to, to the first division, but they, they got relegated straight away. At least this time with Portsmouth, we were able to stay up. So we was able to, to uh, better Portsmouth's previous best. Again, I, I know Consequently, Portsmouth, Portsmouth have gone on, won the FA Cup, and done a lot. But before that, they they never um, hit those heights. So that's my that's my own humble brag. That's a no. that's a pretty good that's a pretty good brag. I think. Do you do you think there's anything? Was there a common theme throughout all those teams that you played for that that made that happen? Do you think? I, I don't know what. No, nah, I, I can't say. I can't say there's, there's a common theme. Um, I, I should add that I, I went back to West Ham in the 2005-2006 and got to the FA Cup final, first FA Cup final. And I, I, I couldn't tell you how long, but probably since since Bobby Moore and, and Trevor Brooker, I, I, I'm, I'm guessing on that. Um, but I, I, I don't know what <clears throat> I don't know what the common theme is. Um, I, I, I couldn't tell you, but that's that's my own humble brag. <laughs> talking about that FA Cup final, I think there's some iconic moments there, and obviously coming runners up but how was that just experience of making such a prestigious final obviously you've had it prior before but when we talk about finals and the mindset of heading into a finals playing at Wembley and playing in big stadiums how did you cope with the pressure because you've had numerous big games in your career so what did you kind of do maybe this can be some advice to young goalkeepers or young players what was some of your advice to keep yourself so calm under these pressures well, at, at, at this point, and, 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 you know, again, I don't know if this is advice that a young goalkeeper can necessarily heed. As, as it turns out, that, that was my last game in English football, that, that 2006 FA Cup final. So um, I'm 37 years old. I've kind of, you know, enjoyed at this point 14 years as, as a professional. And, and you learn that every game is just another game. And, and um, you know, it, you, you really, do you 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 take things uh, uh, exactly as, as you always do? You 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 know you get yourself in a routine. You have the same pre-match routine. Nothing changes. Nothing changes other than you know what what what's around you in terms of what the stadium looks like or the certain expectation. You know at, at at 37 years old, you recognize that that's what that's what the game is about. Just handling every single situation as 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 close as you can to. As, as you did the last. Um, so why it was an FA Cup final, it was, you know, it was came at the end of an incredible season for me. One where I was brought in as a number two and I accepted as being a, a number two um, to, to Roy Carroll at the time. Um, but worked my way into to the starting lineup and we put together this incredible FA Cup run. Um, and you just try to take it, you, you just try to take take it as, as simply, as nonchalantly as as you possibly can. I, I remember in the warm-up before before the FA Cup final. So um, that the 2006 FA Cup final played at the, played at the Millennium Stadium uh, in, in Wales. Um, and they had this huge central scoreboard thing that kind of hung, you know, very high above, above the stadium. And rather than get overly kind of carried away with, with the atmosphere or the pressure, I'm, I'm there with Ludic. Ludic McCloskey is now the goalkeeping coach, and we're trying to kick the ball to hit the hit the scoreboard. That that was our <laughs> that was our that was our fun. Now you know, just kind of relaxed and, and just take things just take things as 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 they come, you know. And and um, 
and and that that was kind of how I how I did it, you know, just take it as as another game played against Liverpool at this point, countless times in in, in my career. Um, so just another game against Liverpool. I just didn't recognize the surroundings so well. Yeah, and I think the important part you said there is about enjoying every moment yeah. and about just t- embracing it. And I think when we talk about enjoying every moment, kind of moving on to your the appearance for Trinidad and Tobago at the World Cup for the first time, like surely that must that must go down with probably one of your most special moments. That first game, World Cup, like mm. talk to us a little bit about just the emotions behind that. Yeah, not not one of the most special moment. Um, I can't I can't fully put um, that experience into context without a little bit of a backstory. You know, as, as I mentioned, um, you know, I grew up in Trinidad and Tobago. Before then, Trinidad and Tobago had never qualified for a World Cup. Uh, when I was at college in, in the U.S., when I was playing for Howard University, we came close. We actually lost her to the U.S. November 19th, 1989. And I say unashamedly, I cried. I, I wasn't in the team. I was just, I was in in I was at Howard actually as as it happens Howard University had played um, Southern Methodist University which is in Dallas Texas and of course I, I eventually played for FC Dallas um, on that on that very day November nineteenth nineteen eighty nine um, uh, the, the the coach of Hyman at, at SMU who went on to coach FC Dallas so there's a lot of parallels here uh, but I, I honestly thought I'd never see Trent Tobago qualify for work. I, 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 you know, we, we, we stumble at home, final hurdle against the U.S. And again, that we needed to draw to qualify for Italia 90. I, I didn't think it would happen. Um, and then we go on this incredible run in, in 2006 um, and, and, and we qualify. And while I, I wasn't the starting goalkeeper, I wasn't certainly for the last, last series of qualifiers, I wasn't supposed to be starting goalkeeper for, for that first game against Sweden. Um, I was just going to enjoy it as a fan. I, I'm a fan. I'm a fan of our football. And as, as I saw it, I, I was a part of something here that I, I, I never thought I, I would be. So I was going to enjoy the day for that. Um, but Calvin Jack, the starting goalkeeper, he picked up an injury in, in one, of the, one of the warm-up games and it was touch and go as to whether he would start. Um, and then during the warm-up, he, he felt he just couldn't he just couldn't give it his all. And, and approached Leo Benaka, you know, told him that he, he wasn't fit. And Leo called me over, and there I was playing in Trinidad Tobago's first ever World Cup game. So, again, the, the mindset has to has to change. I, I go from kicking shots at Clayton Nitz because I'm I'm on the bench and just kind of enjoying enjoying my my day and just relaxing as best I can. Um, to all of a sudden having having to play, and I try to race through my my normal pre pre game routine. Um, the the one thing I, I always insisted on. Um, was I, I would I would finish my warm up five minutes before everybody else, because I wanted to go into the dressing room and just have that little moment of calm before everything just exploded. So while I got a late call to to start my warm up, uh, Michael Maurice, you know, kicked a few balls at me. I thought I'm seeing it. I'm seeing the ball great here. I'm I'm seeing it. I'm seeing this ball great. Um, I didn't I didn't do any crosses. I I I, I tell that I tell that for a reason I didn't do any crosses and just decided that during the game first cross that comes over I'm going to come for it and that's how we're going to figure out how the ball is flying um and then you know I go in have this moment of calm come out here trying to be because national anthem playing at a World Cup and I'm standing right there and I you know Half of me is in total disbelief half of me is trying to keep my feet on the ground and think you've got a game to play here um, and and that's just and that's just what I'm going to do. And I, I try to approach it as at this point I approach every single game. But it's another game. A few few of the guys are recognised. Um, the surroundings looks a little bit different, but it's a it's a soccer game. Um, I tell that story about the crosses because I, I always point this out. Um, so Sweden get a corner five minutes into the game, something like that, and. Uh, Cross comes deep, and I and I go for it because I, I decide I'm going to go for it, uh, and I just about get a fingertip to it, and I think I tip it away from Henrik Larsson who's coming in, and um, and we survive. But now I know how the ball's flying. The ball's flying a little bit more than than I than I think. Um, 
I, I say that because I remember after the game, everybody said, "Oh, you had a really nervous start." And I'm like, "No, I didn't. I, I, I knew that was, I knew that was going to happen. I, you know, I, something was going to happen. I was going to come for it, and that, that was my plan. So, you know, um, I, I just kind of say that, just to say that sometimes you have to have your plan and stick with it, and, 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 um, you know, never been afraid of making a mistake, even on the World Cup stage. You know, you, you learn from them. I, I survived that one." And, and I knew. And from then on in, I took every cross because I knew the ball was flying just a little bit more than, than, I, than I thought. And I adjusted to suit. I think this is this is why you are, are known as one of the most reliable keepers in history. I mean, you've had such a fantastic career. Obviously, your, your final moments at the World Cup. And you spoke there a little bit about how some people maybe question performances who might not actually know the details, like you said mm. there about, oh, you look shaky, but actually, no, I, I was completely fine. I feel like now in modern day, there's so much scrutiny on a modern day goalkeeper, especially now yeah. with the, the pressure of trying to play out and build out from the back. Somebody like a, an Anana at Man United, who's under mm -hmm. immense pressure right now, do you almost have a little bit of sympathy for the modern day goalkeeper and the pressures that they're put under? Uh, I do, and and I think um, so. No, I I also think uh, from a goalkeeping perspective, a lot of the discourse around goalkeepers and their mistakes or their frailties is is misdirected or, or uninformed, you know. And and it's a specialist position, and and not many people recognize that or are able to talk about it. Now, for for me, I, I think Unana's issues are around are around the role that he's asked to play as, as a leader. Um, I, I do not, I do not doubt Onana's talents, both as, as a shot stopper and to play the ball off with his feet. I get the feeling, and when I see Onana play and some of the mistakes that he makes, um, I get the feeling that in coming in, Ten Hag says to him, listen, I, I need a leader at the back here. I need somebody who can command and control my back four. Some of these guys aren't maybe as good as Man United players should be, and I need somebody to kind of lead them. Oftentimes, when you're going into a club, when you're trying to establish yourself, not, not, not only when you're trying to establish yourself, at the start of a season, you have to focus on your game. And I think Onana came in, new season, new club, new league, and was more concerned with controlling and marshalling his back four than he was with his game. So our, our first game of the season was, he comes for a cross that he has absolutely no right to because it's been put into his mind that these guys aren't as good as you would expect Manchester United players uh, to be. Or, you know, you just leave into Milan where you lose the Champions League final. They aren't as good as Inter's back four. So now you're making decisions that you shouldn't because you're trying to make up for somebody else's game. Now, that same cross comes, now, again, that same cross comes in six months into the season, Unana probably takes it because he's, he's now established himself. He, he's, he's, he gets to understand his role in that back four, gets to understand what those defenders are doing and the, the path of attack that he takes to take that cross. So sometimes you just have to, in establishing yourself in a team, focus on you, focus on getting your game right. You build into that leadership position, quote unquote. You build into marshalling a back four. That that's not something that comes out of the gate. You you cannot you cannot have that coming out of the gate. So that's that's a long explanation around um, some of the mentalities around around a goalkeeper. We we'll sit on the outside and we look at the mistakes made, but I think for for the goalkeeping position especially. Um, the psychology is so different from every other player, which, we, which we've spoken about, that you have to take that in, into consideration um, when you're having a, a bigger, broader look and discussion around goalkeepers. No, I think that's such a, fan, a fascinating insight into the goalkeeping mindset. It's, it's so important to understand that part. And as I mentioned earlier, you've had such a fantastic career on the field, but then from retirement off the field, honorary president at Charaita and the Red Card and you've done a lot of work in the community and been awarded for it and then obviously as a pundit 
what what now is kind of your drive to keep driving the game now you're a retired player? Um, I, I would just like to see. I, I feel the game offers so many opportunities for so many people. It's, it's the world's most popular sport. So people on all four corners of the earth are, are playing this game and playing it for different reasons. You know, for, for some, it's just a way to connect with friends. Um, for some, it, it's, an, it's an opportunity to, to go to college uh, and to earn a degree uh, that, that they may not have been able to do otherwise. Um, for some, it's to go on and, and be a professional and, and have... A, a, have that career that all of our childhood dreams uh, are, are made of. Um, for some, it's, it's just a way to find find confidence. You know, like I, I, I also point out that I was a kind of a quirky kid growing up, you know, um, but it was through the game I was able to find confidence. You know, I, I think the game offers so many opportunities for so many, it's in, 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 and in so many ways that we oftentimes kind of lose lose sight or, or, or only focus on on the professionals, on the Messi's and the Ronaldo's and the Bugatti's and the mansions. When oftentimes it's it's well more times than more times than than, than, than any other. It's just a way for, for friends to connect, for us to, to have a confidence, for us to learn from from, from mistakes. Um I, I think for I think soccer is, is such a such a, an example for humanity at its best in, in every single in, in every single way you learn how to challenge authority you know you, there's a referee you might not agree with 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 his decision you can challenge it you know you can accept it what you can't do is go and punch your ref in the face you know for argument's sake you know um you you learn that things don't always go your way you don't win every single game you lose, you lose quite a few, um, and you learn how to how to meet both of those with, with an even keel, uh, uh, as I say. Um, you 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 learn that regardless of how we look, how we identify, what language you speak, what's our culture. I often I often use Newcastle as as an example. Here I am, a young black kid from Trantabigo, sitting no more than five or ten feet away from a player from Colombia, a player from Georgia, a player from Denmark, Norway, up and down the United Kingdom. Um, we all grew up very differently. Some of us spoke different languages. We go out in the field together. When we win, we celebrate together. When we lose, we go out on the training ground and work to put it right. I feel that's humanity at its absolute best. When we can take those lessons from the game, that's when we recognize our best selves. So um, that for me will, will always be kind of my, my driving force. Um, the game has given me a lot in, in every respect. And I'm not talking financially. I'm not talking about the 15-year career. I'm talking about how it's been able to shape who I am and how I see this world. And I would just love more people to, to experience that, to, to be to be privy to those those same lessons. Wow. Chaka, I think that's the kind of the perfect way to end this this conversation. That that was really, really insightful. Every part you said there, I think all of our listeners can take so much from, whether they're a coach, a player, a fan. Uh, just, just thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Um and yeah, it's been it's been a great episode where I've learned personally in the last hour. So no, thank you very much. Thank you very much. It was good fun. I, I always enjoy a, a stroll down memory lane. Exactly. Yeah. When we've spoken to a few of our recent guests, it's one of those that everyone said, like, you sometimes day to day don't think about your your past and your career. And it almost gives you a period to reflect on your on yeah. your past. So, no, thank you very much. But maybe just before we end, um, Jack might struggle with my question. So you might have to maybe give him a little bit of help. But <laughs> Just I'm struggling. Me. I'm struggling a little bit as well, Jack. I've got three in mind. I've got three in mind. I'm, I'm wondering if it's the same three. Okay. Interesting. All right. So, Jack, just to remind you and the listeners, there are three goalkeepers in Premier League history who have 150 clean oh, sheets. Oh, Premier League more. history. I thought it was current Premier League goalkeepers. Oh, I'm sorry. No, it's it's Premier League history. All right. Okay. All right. 
I, I, I have a different three now. Okay. <laughs> so, Jack, who's your, who's your three, do you think? Well, I think I'm, I'm thinking I'm right in thinking the most clean sheets ever in the Premier League is Petr Cech. That is correct. Mm-hmm. So he's won. Um, and then, actually, one came to my mind because uh, a former teammate of Shaka's, which was David James, just because the amount mm-hmm. of games he played in the Premier League, I think he's got to be up there. Number two, so you're getting this in order as well. I'm impressed. Oh, okay. Uh, and then the last one, I was debating whether to go for someone who has the longevity or someone who played in the Premier League a long time, but was probably a better goalkeeper. And that was between David De Gea and Mark Swartzer. Or um, one is right, one yeah. is wrong. But who is oh, really? I, I'm going to say, uh, well, Mark Swartzer never played for a big team, so I, I think it would be harder for him to keep the clean sheets when he's playing against the better team. So I'm going to go with David De Gea as number three. All right, so not only a Middlesbrough fan's going to be knocking on your door saying they're not a big club, <laughs> uh, but Mark, Mark Swartzer... Not, everyone, not every club can be a big club. Well, as a Huddersfield Town fan, it can be. Um, yeah. Mark, Mark Swartzer is the third option. So, yeah, David De Gea is uh, in fourth place. Oh. David, wow. De Gea, David De Gea, 147 clean sheet. Mark Swartzer, 151. Oh, so there's four wow. in it. Oh, okay. Dude, what, what were uh, you yeah, saying, yeah, Saka, there? I, I would have gone for Peter Schmeichel or David Seaman. So David Seaman actually is in fifth place, 141. And then uh, Peter Smichael is actually in 11th spot, 128. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. Okay. All the, right. The only goalkeeper to win the Premier League Player of the Year award, right? Yep. Oh, wow. Okay. So, But no, um, Jack, any last words from you? Uh, yeah, I think that was just a great... Um, journey to listen to i'm sure it's inspiring for a lot of people the the, the key thing i think that stands out to me is, is kind of mental resilience you know people sometimes look at football and careers and they they see the the happy side of it they see the glitz and glam and they see the the great opportunities they get playing in front of thousands of people but they're maybe not aware of some of the challenges that go on behind the scenes going through injuries going through moves having to be away from friends and family and, and challenges like this and i think that takes a lot of mental toughness and I think that was a, a great insight into that um, of this last hour. So yeah, no, Jacka, thank you very much. We appreciate your time and uh, to all the listeners, we, uh, we bid you a farewell. Mm-hmm.